Welcome, welcome, welcome into A Seminarian and Friends, a podcast where my friends ask me their questions about Jesus, scripture, the church, or theology. My name is Kevin Gray, the seminarian who's probably in a class that addresses their quandaries. Today's episode is being recorded on the anniversary of the death of Queen Jane Grey, a Reformation-era Queen of England who had the crown for nine days before her beheading. A shout-out is in store for her for saying rad things such as, The highest earthly enjoyments are but a shadow of the joy I find in reading God's word. Amen. May it be so for us as well. So that leads us to the question of the day, which actually comes from me. It stems from the famous verse in Jeremiah 29:11, which says, For I know the plans I have for you says the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It's a beautiful verse, but it's not without its controversy, and it begs the bigger question of the Christian's relationship to God's covenants. So before we get to answering this question, I want to do a quick rundown on these covenants. There are five main covenants in scripture. You've got the Adamic slash Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and then the New. So the Adamic or Noahic covenant was given first to Adam, the first human. God told him to be fruitful and multiply. He was given dominion over the earth to cultivate it and to extend God's reign out from the Garden of Eden to the whole of the earth. And then after the flood, he renewed the covenant God did with Noah. And it was here, he said that he was not going to flood the earth, the whole earth again. And it was here that common grace was given. Common grace is the theological term for rain and other good things happening to both the righteous and the unrighteous. And this was another element that Christ actually purchased with his death and resurrection on the cross thousands of years later. So that's covenant number one. Covenant covenant number two is the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham was a man living in Canaan and worshiping pagan gods. But out of grace, God called him out of the land of Canaan and said, I'm going to make you the father of a nation. His name, that's what Abram meant. That's what his name was. And then God renamed him Abraham, which means the father of a multitude of nations. And God said, through you, I will bless the whole world. Then a while later, God cut a covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai. This was after the Exodus. So God had just taken the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and they're all hanging out before Mount Sinai and Moses receives this code, this law from God as a relationship contract between him and his people so that his people would know how to live. A while later, they are now in this land that God had promised to Abraham so that he could be 
the father of nations and a blessing to nations. They're in the land. Israel asks for a king. They get first Saul. Saul wasn't a good king. And then they get David. And to David, God promised an everlasting kingdom, one with one on which a king would never not be enthroned. A king of righteousness and justice. A good king for the people. And then eventually, through all of the, or after all of the disobedience from Israel, came a new person who cut a new covenant. This person was Jesus. And with his own blood, he cut a new covenant Uh, The Old Testament predicted it as the New Covenant, but more common names for it were the Covenant of Peace peace and the Everlasting Covenant. So it was Jesus who initiated this when he gave his life as a ransom for many. So those are the five main covenants in Scripture. And so the, the question is, one, where does Jeremiah fit into all of this? And two, how does a Christian fit into relating with these. So let me give you a little bit of background on Jeremiah. So at this time, the Israelites had been in the promised land in Canaan for hundreds of years and had exercised time and time again their covenantal unfaithfulness. So they continued to disobey God and do the exact opposite of what he wanted them to do. They were unloving toward each other and they exercised injustice toward the poor. They rejected God's reign and were overall very unfaithful in their relationship with him. Their religious activities were not good, uh, really hypocritical. So all of this sin was going on and idolatry was going on. And God started sending prophets as his spokesmen to say, this is what you're doing. You are breaking the Mosaic Covenant. And if you don't repent and stop doing this and return to me, I'm going to send the judgment that he listed in the Mosaic Covenant, one of which was exile from the land. Well, we enter the story in Jeremiah at a particularly dramatic time in this history in which the sin of the land was unbelievable and God was saying basically that they're at the point of no return. They weren't going to listen to Jeremiah uh, and were instead very close to exile. So at the end, near the end of Jeremiah's prophetic ministry, there was a threefold exile out of the land, out of Jerusalem by Babylon. Babylon had come and started to siege the city and took three sets of exiles into Babylon. And then finally the city fell and the temple was burned and Jerusalem was in ruins. So like I said, Jeremiah was one of these spokesmen or prophets who preached to the people and to the kings of the time about the heinous idolatry of Judah. And he warned them of the the coming judgment at the hands of Babylon. They had already seen 
the judgment for the northern kingdom of Israel at the hands of Assyria. But they didn't listen to any of this. Even still, God promised to them hope. And as the example of this hope, God had Jeremiah write a letter to these exiles, some, to some of the exiles who had already been taken. And he said these words, and I'm going to read from Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 14. So hear the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So again, in this time of destruction and turmoil and terror, God sends a word of hope to the people in exile saying, you're going to pay the punishment for your sins for 70 years in exile. But after that point, I will bring you back into the land that I had promised you and given you. And then I will continue to uphold my promise to you to do good things to you. So that's the a short recap of the letter that Jeremiah sent to these exiles. And, and it was a message that he repeated throughout the rest of the book. Now, the controversy comes from, in part, that it is really easy to take that out of context and not understand to whom God was speaking and about what God was speaking and then take these words and apply them haphazardly to ourselves. We can't do that with this verse and we can't do that with any other verse in scripture, but it's really easy to do that. Case in point, there is a whole litany of charlatans or prosperity gospel preachers who speak lies. They're false teachers and they use this verse to say that God wants to give us health and wealth and prosperity and say that all we need to do is just believe that that's going to happen and maybe even give their ministry some seed money 
um, so that when we, so that we will reap what we sow. All of this is a lie. It is a poor hermeneutic. It is reading the word of God very poorly. And on top of that, it takes advantage of these people who are in hard situations, destroying their lives while these preachers are getting rich by desecrating the beauty of the gospel and the truth of God's word. In addition, it's really easy to fall victim to the temptation of making the word of God about us and not about God's glory. It's a human-centered hermeneutic, also called eisegesis, where we read into the text what we want it to say instead of letting the text speak for itself and make much of God, who he is, and what he's done. On top of all of that, there is a difference of opinion amongst Christians, even those who are reading the Bible correctly and interpreting it well. There are two theological camps that look at this verse differently. The first one comes from dispensationalism. Now, dispensationalism is a theological framework that teaches redemptive history as temporally discrete stages in which God dispenses actions upon humanity. In other words, there are periods that begin and end in God's work. According to this system, the present age is the dispensation of grace, in which, after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, the church is growing because God is only working with the church. But a time will come when God will take Israel off the metaphorical shelf of redemption and work with them again to open their eyes so that they see Jesus as their prophesied Messiah and then they'll believe and be saved. Now the most important thing to remember is that dispensationalists distinguish Israel from the church. And I bring all of this up because dispensationalists say that since the church differs from Israel, old covenant promises such as Jeremiah 29:11 do not apply to the church at all. Now on the other end of the spectrum, you have covenantalism which is a theological framework that teaches redemptive history as a progressive revelation of never-ending covenants between God and man. These covenants are like contracts or binding promises in the same way that marriage is intended to be a binding, unbreakable promise between a man and woman before God. So according to this framework, the church, which is made up of Jews and non-Jews, also known as Gentiles, has been grafted into Israel so that together, in Christ, all who believe form one new humanity without distinction between Jew or Gentile, or male or female, or anything else, with Christ Jesus as the head. And then every aforementioned covenant God made with humanity is fulfilled and upheld in Jesus. This is the theological framework that I believe more faithfully describes God's work in scripture. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 1, 18, 20. 
As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. In other words, that verse is saying that if we are in Christ through faith, then all of the promises God made to Israel apply to us because we are Israel. We are the children of Abraham. We are the children of promise. We are the true Israel that the prophets prophesied and Paul talked about in Romans 9. So with all of that said, what does it mean? What does it mean for us today as Christians? How do we understand Jeremiah 29, 11? Well, because Christ fulfilled and continues to uphold the covenants, initiating the new covenant, which I mentioned earlier that he cut and initiated and created by the pouring of his blood upon the cross, both paying the sin debt for our rebellious natures and the individual transgressions and iniquities that we commit against God. He paid for that debt and simultaneously initiated the new covenant, the covenant of peace, the eternal covenant. And because he did all of that, we do not relate to the Old Testament covenants in the same way that people did before Christ came and inaugurated the eschatological times, which is the Greek term for last days. If you want to learn more about the relationship between Christians and the specifically Mosaic Covenant, check out my Old Testament professor's book entitled How to Understand and Apply the Old Testament. It's written by Dr. Jason DeRoshi. He goes in depth about uh, the way that Christ changes and transforms the Mosaic Covenant to Christians. So because Christ fulfilled these covenants, they're different to us, which means that we should not expect the covenant blessings for obedience or the covenant curses for disobedience that Moses listed out in Leviticus chapter 29 and Deuteronomy chapter 28 in the same way that Old Testament Israelites did. To be more specific, Jeremiah 29.11 is for Christians. There are other verses in, in scripture that you can look up that talk about how all of what was written previously was written for our instruction. So all of the prophets knew that they were writing for Christians and to Christians ultimately through Christ. And so Jeremiah 29 11 is for us, but it doesn't look the same way that the Israelites received it. It's not telling us that God is promising wealth and happiness and fame and good jobs and prosperity and ease or long life on earth to Christians. Instead, this verse promises a better future. It's a future in 
Jesus, an eternal future with eternal blessings that far supersede any of the temporal blessings we can receive on earth. The hope that is promised to Christians in Jeremiah 29, 11 is life with Jesus without end. We get God himself to enjoy and worship and delight in and come to know as the greatest blessing to enjoy without end. And that is the promise in Jeremiah 29, 11 for Christians. So yes, God does promise us a life and hope and prosperity. That's one of the ways different translations render Jeremiah 29, 11. But their eternal prosperity in Jesus when the new heavens and the new earth are established after Christ comes and finalizes history and consummates glory. What good news, what a savior, what a hope that we have in him. So let me leave you with one final quote from our friend Queen Jane Grey. She said this, Pray God in the bowels of his mercy to send you his Holy Spirit, for he hath given you his great gift of utterance, referring to his word. If it pleased him also to open the eyes of your heart. Friends, I hope that he opens the eyes of your heart so that you love him and enjoy him and receive the full promise of Jeremiah 29 11 and everything else that scripture promises through the death, resurrection, life, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Soli Deo Gloria.